Well, this morning we are going to talk about sex. Not a topic that we touch on very often in this church. We have a lot of visitors and guests, and uh, we are working through the whole Bible. We're preaching one message on each book of the Bible in a series that we've titled, Walk Through the Bible, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures, Book by Book. And as disciples of God's Word, we let God set the agenda for what we talk about rather than man. It's not the preacher's will who, who decides, well, I'd like to talk about this, or I'd like to skip over that. You know, we, as, a, as a ministers of the gospel, must preach the whole counsel of God. And so today we have come to the Song of Solomon, the last wisdom book in the Old Testament. And it's interesting that the last wisdom book in the Old Testament gives us wisdom for love. And so I have entitled this sermon today, Wisdom for Lovers. And we're going to dive into this book. I, do, I am aware that we have children in our midst, and uh, we will keep this uh, hopefully as age-appropriate as possible, while also giving you something to talk about as you go home today. All right. Yeah, that was a joke. Thank you. Mm-hmm. When we think about love and we think about sex, that is certainly something that is on the front page of society's agenda, isn't it? Sex is everywhere. Debates about sexuality, about love, about uh, very strangely even what is a man and what is a woman. We live in a very interesting age where even the very basics are being questioned, are being twisted, are being marred. And if there is any place that our culture desperately needs wisdom today, it is certainly regarding sex, marriage, and human sexuality. And so God has given us a book to teach us about that. And I will argue today that the Song of Solomon is a book that gives us wisdom for lovers. It's primarily a book about marriage, about marital relations, and the goodness and the blessing of that as a gift of God. You know, we just a little bit ago celebrated a baptism. Children are the very fruit and product of love, aren't they? And it is a good and blessed gift that God has given to us. We're going to look at the Song of Solomon in three parts today. The first part, we'll look at the goodness of sex and human sexuality. Secondly, we'll look at the importance of waiting or sexuality within the context of marriage. And thirdly, we will look at the supremacy of love and also unpack how it connects to our relationship with Christ as his church. So first, let's begin with the goodness of sex. The goodness of sex. I've already mentioned a a number of problems where the world has a very twisted view of sex and of human sexuality. But it's not just the world. I think it's easy always to kind of point fingers at the world. Uh, That's kind of an easy target. But it's very easy to avoid our own problems in so doing. And unfortunately, 
throughout the history of the church, there has also been some very twisted views of sexuality as well. For example, in the early church, uh, they were plagued by Gnostics. So Gnostics, Gnosticism was this philosophy that taught that matter is evil, the spirit is good, and so we need to shut off and ignore the, the physical things of this world and be simply spiritual. And that kind of idea also then flood uh, flooded the church as well and uh, to such a degree that even one of the w- most well-known early church historians by the name of Origen, he actually castrated himself. He, uh, he actually neutered himself, which he later regretted in, in later life. But even theologians like Origen went so far to deny wor- the sexual or physical pleasures that he neutered himself. And also in the church, many times there can be a prudish tendency or a shaming of our sexuality, of the celebration of of who we are, or simply the making uh, of sex a mere functional necessity for children. You know, I've I've heard some stories of uh, uh, I don't want to give names, but of like of grandparents who you know didn't ever say anything about sex, uh, who you know have heard of people who they don't want to turn the lights on because they're ashamed of themselves. You know, as a minister, you hear very, um, you know, in pastoral counseling, you, you get a lot of this. People wrestling with what does it mean to be a sexual being as a Christian? And I think one of the problems is that because the society has so marred and twisted sexuality, that we don't really know what it means to be a sexual being and a Christian. And fortunately, God has given us wisdom for that, and that's what we're going to see here in the Song of Solomon and in this first point as we talk about the goodness of sex and human sexuality. In Song of Solomon, sex is celebrated. It is, uh, it is a good and wonderful thing, and I'll give you a few examples. For example, in, in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, uh, the husband is celebrating over his wife, saying, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them, one among them, has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. And he goes on and on from there, ultimately talking about her breasts as well. And sexuality here is celebrated, and a husband should celebrate over his wife. That is a a good thing in a gift of God. Sex is also celebrated through many metaphors, and I'm not going to unpack many of those today. I'll leave that for you and your research. I'll, I'll commend. A, there's a commentary uh, on page 7 of your worship folder that I would commend to you if you want to study more deeply the book at an age-appropriate level. Uh, but one of the metaphors is the garden. This idea of fruit and fruitfulness and vitality. And you'll see the garden metaphor uh, used several times in the book of, uh, of the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon.
Finally, there's other references in the book as well to uh, male and female genitalia. And these are things that are celebrated. I remember uh, counseling one uh, couple who, uh, who the wife was ashamed of her body and, and wanted to stay in the dark. And uh, it, took, it took some time to help them work through this. And it turned out that a lot of that had to do with uh, some painful experiences of her past. But what I want to say to you is that God has made you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that in the context of marriage, that your body is something that should be celebrated and appreciated. And that's something that I don't think we see in the world, do we? Even where sex is celebrated, it's all usury. It's all using people. It's, it's making objects of things. But in the context of biblical sexuality, your body is something to be appropriately celebrated in the appropriate context, of course. But it's not something that you should ever be ashamed of. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Your sexuality is a gift from Him. We are taught in the Song of Solomon to celebrate our sexuality within the context of marriage. Both verbally, we see both poems from the husband to the wife and from the wife to the husband, where they are verbally appreciating one another. You know, husbands, we should not be stoic, never saying anything nice about our wives or commenting on their beauty. We should appreciate our wives. And same for you women, too, appreciating your husbands. And there's beautiful poems from husband to wife describing and adoring one another. And that is good and wonderful. That is a gift from God. We are also taught in Scripture that physical, uh, physical sex, actual sexuality sex, is something that should be celebrated regularly <clears throat> as well. Excuse me. <clears throat> I mentioned in the early church the problem of Gnosticism. And in the church of Corinth, they were teaching that it's actually better not to be married at all. And that... Actually, to some degree, it's, you're more holy if you're not having sex. That somehow sex defiles you. And that was a problem, and Paul had to address that to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 7.3, he said, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. That it is sinful to withhold sex from your partner, whether the husband or the wife. Both in the Old Testament and New, our sexuality within the context of marriage should be regularly celebrated verbally and physically. Okay, are you all feeling a little uncomfortable and weird by now? We will move on to our second point. But I hope that you do receive these words and find joy in them. Uh, Secondly, the importance of waiting So let's look at the importance of waiting and sexuality within the context of marriage. One of my children came home this week. It was the first week of school and was bawling, was weeping because 
their friends of several, uh, two of them, were bragging about having sex this summer. These are young children. Young children. We live in a, the school system. What the school systems are teaching young children to do is abominable. And what the culture is saying is permissible is, it's just shocking. Words do not, words cannot describe the horror that is being pushed upon our children today. And my child is weeping, grieving for these children who at such a young age have already had sex. We need to understand as we read the Song of Solomon that God has designed sex for the context of marriage. For the context of marriage. Uh, Just to defend that case, in chapter 3, verse 6, we read about Solomon's wedding. So the, the sexual actions and things we read in this book are within that context in 3, chapter 6. Chapter 3, verse 6, excuse me. We read, What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh, against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. O go out, O daughters of of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So Solomon, uh, the Song of Solomon is given to us within the context of marriage. Moreover, we have a repeated uh, phrase that comes about three times in the Song of Solomon, exhorting us to wait. And that phrase is first mentioned in chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love, until it pleases. You do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Commenting on this verse, R.C. Sproul says, Here the refrain is a reminder that the lovemaking should await the right time with the right person. The broader context of Scripture indicates that the right time is marriage and the right person is one's spouse. Moreover, as we read wisdom literature in the Old Testament, sometimes it can feel like just a good advice column. But when we read wisdom literature, we need to remember we are reading it within the context of the covenant community of God. And the moral law of God always applies. As as is an example, of the seventh commandment, that you shall not commit adultery. Or the tenth commandment, that you should not covet your neighbor's wife. 
So we must read these things. So you, you read a lot of bizarre interpretations of the Song of Solomon that would say this is just sex advice for anyone. But that's folly. We need to read it within the wider context of Scripture. My encouragement to you children and to all of you if you're single is to abstain from sex, to follow God's wisdom, abstain from sex until it is time to be married. Save yourself. Now that's not to say that there is not forgiveness in Jesus. If uh, you have fallen in that area, there is. But do not listen to the folly of the world. Save yourself for your spouse. You know, I know that um, Harry Potter is a controversial kind of book and series in, uh, in Christian circles. Uh, but something that, uh, that made me think one day, there is uh, in, in the novel, there is an evil villain who murders uh, a number of people. And, uh, and in the context of this world, they're saying that they're splitting their soul. How could you split your soul? One of the professors is shocked that someone could split their soul. Well, there's a far deeper reality than even that of murder. We are told that when you have sex, you become one flesh with that person. And so if you have sex with multiple people, you are dividing your body. You are tearing your body apart again and again. And that is death. And this culture is teaching you to kill yourself by being promiscuous. And just trying things out and seeing if things work. Don't kill yourself. Save yourself for your bride or your groom. Finally, the Song of Solomon teaches us about the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. We've seen so far the goodness of sex and human sexuality. We've learned about the importance of waiting and sexuality within the context of marriage. And thirdly, let's look at the supremacy of love. Now, over the last 10 days, my wife has been in America um, helping her mom who uh, has uh, terminal cancer. It's been a hard time for our family and we sent Deborah with a whole heart you know to go back to the states to care for her mother but something happened while Deborah was gone our whole myself and my my four kids I think we felt like we were kind of floating around the last 10 days there was I describe it there was no gravity in the home there's no my wife is it's the gravity of the home that makes the whole household work and you know dishes were piling up and laundry was piling up and you know I was doing my best to get my kids to school as school started we were just kind of floating and and of course Deborah was continuing to love us from afar but when that love is not present in the home you feel like you're floating you're listless you're lost at sea and love is supreme and we felt that as soon as Deborah came back it was like oh Okay, the family is, is whole again. And that, of course, also highlights the tragedy of, of death and, and tragedy of divorce. 
or things like that as well. But love is supreme. The Bible teaches us that. And we see that in the Song of Solomon. I'll give you a couple examples uh, of that. In, in chapter 1, we really open up with that theme. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And here we are, we are told that, that love is far more supreme than any other sensual pleasure, including in this context, wine. But we also see the supremacy of love at the end of the Song of Solomon as well. In chapter 8, which we read for our scripture reading this morning, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, where we read, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Here we are told that love is as powerful as death. And death is powerful. There's nothing we can do to stop death. And we're told that love is as strong as death. How about jealousy? It's, it's fierce as the grave. Hell hath no fury like a woman's, woman's scorn, is the, the old saying. We're even told that love is like the very flame of Yahweh, of the Lord. And we are told in the New Testament that God is love. Pure love is described as the flame of God. The flame of Yahweh. Water cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. We are also told kind of an interesting saying in verse 7, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And what the the writer is saying here is that love is so great that it cannot be bought. Love is a treasure that you cannot buy. It is invaluable. I hope that you have seen this morning before we connect to the New Testament the importance of love and of sexuality of marriage and I pray that you would find joy and life in your marriages and in your life whether you're single or married by seeking the wisdom that God has given concerning this matter in the Song of Solomon it is vital that we do not quickly rush over these, uh, these verses and try to overly spiritualize or allegorize them. 
you, I, you can read some pretty bizarre and strange interpretations of the Song of Solomon to people that want to just brush past the, the surface of the, of the letters and of the words and simply try to find kind of deep, hidden spiritual meanings. This really is a book about sex. It really is. Because God wants us to be happy and to celebrate and steward this gift in a godly way. It really is a book about marriage and about sex. And we need it. And contrary to what the world thinks about the Christians or Christians or the Bible or the church, this is something to be celebrated and is wonderful. And while the primary teaching of the Song of Solomon is to give us wisdom for sexuality, it does also foreshadow our relationship with Christ. So in a non-allegorical way, it does foreshadow Christ and his love for the church. And I want to conclude this message by looking at that in brief. I hope you picked up on it as we read it in our New Testament scripture reading. But we, in Ephesians chapter 5, we are given this comparison where in uh, Ephesians 5:25 Paul tells the church husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish And just as a husband seeks to clothe his wife and give her jewelry, I probably need to do that more than I I do. My wife's looking at me. Um, As we we seek for our wives to flourish, all the more should we be seeking for them to spiritually flourish. And that's our job. And to sacrifice ourselves for them, to lay our lives down for them as Christ loved the church. And marriage itself is a profound illustration of Jesus' love for us. That, by the way, is what makes adultery so heinous. What if God forsook us? When we, when, if you commit adultery or divorce, you are throwing mud on the glorious illustration that you're supposed to be of Christ's glory in his love for the church. While Song of Solomon shows the, the adoration of the husband to love and to see the, that his wife flourishes, in the same way, we need to see that our wives and our, our children, for that matter, flourish, that they are being sanctified by the word, that they are washed with it. But how about if you are not married? How do you express the, the essence of the Song of Solomon and of our exhortation to love? We are all given the call as Christians to love one another. There is a call to brotherly love. There are different kinds of a love. The Song of Solomon, of course, focuses much on erotic love, but there is also brotherly love the you know you know the city philadelphia 
um, that that means brotherly love. That's the word for the from the Greek for brotherly love. And we all can love each other with the same love of Christ that is expressed uh, in the context of marriage as well, um, with the brotherly aspect of it. You know, Paul told the church in Corinth who was struggling with unity. The church at Corinth, I've said many, many times that if you thought your church plant's going bad, look at Paul's. Corinth was, was racked with problems, with pride, with self-promotion, with twisted views of sexuality. They were going to the temples and participating in all the rituals and at the same time saying, well, sex is kind of a dirty thing. You're more supreme if you, if you don't do it. They're, they're all over the place. But what Paul focuses on with love, we find in chapter 13, often read at a wedding, but this is actually a huge slap in the face to the church of Corinth because he's showing them what love is and they are not that. But we read in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. You know, the Corinthians were probably going like this as they're hearing this. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the crown of the Christian life. Love is the crown of the Christian life that reflects Christ's love for us and the love that we ought to have for the church. Solomon calls us to be fierce lovers. Fierce lovers, both in the context of marriage but also as we consider the greater teachings of the Bible to be fierce lovers of one another as brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, than he who lays his life down for his friends. So may that kind of love be what we are known for in this church and in our homes, that we lay our lives down for one another. And in so doing, glorify the love of Christ.
that he has lavished on us as his bride. Let's pray.